Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have the pleasure of talking with my new friend, Scott. Scott, welcome to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Can you uh, catch, tell us about your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you working on ministry project-wise? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am, I'm the associate pastor of Kerrville Bible Church in Kerrville, Texas, uh, Hill Country. And uh, and so i um, been here for right about a year. And uh, we moved here from Southwest Colorado, where I pastored a little church called Summit Lake Community Church for about 16 years, a great little place, a great, great uh, community, great church. Uh, but the Lord led us uh, to a different path of ministry here and uh, been married for 27 years and um, and got four sons, um, three that are out, out of the home and one that's getting ready to get married here in the next Next year, and, uh, and then I've got one still in the home, and uh, we uh, we love our boys. They're all following the Lord, and um, and Lord has just blessed us, blessed our ministry. I was uh, was called into ministry uh, after being an architect for about thirteen years or so, and uh, and had a great career as an architect, and really loved what I was doing. Worked in Aspen, Colorado, uh, for a number of years, designing large homes, and and uh, ski resort facilities and that sort of thing. But the Lord called me out of that ministry, out of that into the ministry. And uh, we moved to California, went to the Master Seminary where I graduated uh, with a uh, of serving the Lord. And uh, we've, we've really enjoyed it. That's awesome, brother. That's awesome. Well, can you uh, tell us a little bit about this book? What about evil, a defense of God's sovereign glory, why you wrote it and how you hope it'll be received? Well, uh, uh, my first book was called What About Free Will, which came out uh, about four years ago a little little over four years ago and uh, and uh, in dealing with the topic of God's sovereignty and the question of free will uh, you inevitably intersect the question of the problem of evil and uh, and so um, so I, I kind of touched on that topic a little bit in that book but I knew it it, uh, it needed a, a larger treatment and my editor agreed and he really encouraged me to consider writing a, an entire book on the problem of evil I really didn't want to write the book because <laughs> I knew it was a daunting subject. Really, perhaps, uh, you know, if free will is a daunting subject, which it is, the problem of evil is even a more daunting subject. And uh, But I really hadn't seen anything that I thought was helpful from a Reformed uh, perspective. And uh, and so, um, so that's what kind of led me to, to embark on that adventure. Um, and, and since then, some really good stuff has come out from a Reformed perspective perspective, but all of that came out while I was researching this book and was useful to me. And uh, and so we could talk a little more about that. But, um, you know, I think we're living in a time where people are really starting to think a lot about the nature of evil. Uh, we're living in some dark times. We're living in times that are uncertain. And uh, and people 
people are scared. Uh, people are fearful, I think. There's a lot of anxiety uh, that you see not only in the culture at large, but in, in the church and among Christians. And so in, in some ways, I think this book can be very timely uh, because it addresses a kind of, uh, of issue that people are really thinking about. And, uh, and so I hope it will be helpful for people to think through the issues of why is there evil in the world? Why has God, um, depending on your theological perspective, how, why has he permitted evil to happen or, uh, or why has he ordained it? And, and I believe that is a better way of looking at it. Uh, and, uh, and those are tough questions. And so I try to unravel all of that, uh, in, in this book. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right there. Uh, there's, there's, uh, the, thankfully there is good answers to these, these questions. The church has, you know, wrestled with this and, and given good answers. So we can be thankful for that and, uh, thankful for your, for your book. I remember in seminary, I, I read probably like 30 books on this on this topic and I was covering you know the the problem of evil in the book of Job which is no small yeah. thing especially yeah, when you do it in 20 pages you know it's right. like you could do like probably 300 400 pages you know <laughs> or yes. more you know but it was like absolutely I uh, I read like I don't even know like 30 or 40 books to write that paper and uh, I felt yeah. man I could really write it but but I I I get these I write uh Christianity com I, I I get questions and a lot of the questions are about these types of things because you know people are really uh, like you're saying people are struggling with with these types of questions and like I said we have good answers to these questions so I, I'm really thankful for your for your book I think it's uh, very very helpful and like you said it's it's needed um, that we need more books that that address this because people are people are leaving the church. A lot of people leave the church over these types of questions because they don't get the, the answers that they really need or, or they yeah. don't feel like they, I should say, they don't feel like they get the question, the answers to the questions that they, that they really have. So. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, it's an issue that, that scripture addresses, not maybe so much in the categories that sometimes we ask the question, but, um, but I mean, when you think about the Bible's intersection with the problem of evil, it's quite extensive. I mean, you think of the book of Job, you think of a book like Lamentations, or even books like the book of Ruth, or, you know, or First Peter, you know, in the New Testament, um, a good portion of the book of Hebrews. I mean, a lot of it deals with suffering and pain and evil in this world. And uh, and so it's, it's not it's not a subject that the Bible shies away from at all. And, uh, and yet I think as I think a lot of Christians and theologians are afraid to interact with it in, in the bold kind of way that scripture does, I think. And, and so, so that's what I try to do in this book. I think you're, I think you're right. You know, there, there's a lot of things, you know, that when you talk about the problem of evil, you know, it is, it's not just a theological, theologically weighted uh, thing subject but it's also as you're saying a very pastorally important subject and it's also very practical um so how do how do we help people in our local churches process the problem of evil well there's there's really two two questions there you know you have you have the question of how does someone who is in the midst of experiencing pain and suffering for various reasons trials and tribulations and 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 you know maybe experiencing grief because of the death of a loved one or something like that you know there's a question of how do you handle uh, 
person going through suffering? And uh, that's one question, and, um, and Scripture clearly addresses that. But then there are, there are intellectual questions that are raised as well, and I think those are separate questions. And I think when someone is in the midst of suffering, when they're experiencing grief or pain, um, you know, you address that in a in a different way than you do their intellectual questions. And most people in the midst of pain and suffering don't have intellectual questions. Uh, they don't have they're not they're not they don't have burning theological issues that are that are weighing upon their minds. They want relief. They want relief. They want some kind of sense of hope. And so. Um, and so in those situations, I think, you know, you just, you stop and, and you listen and you weep and you hug and, and you stand by, you know, those in love. And then later on, maybe you'll have an opportunity to talk about some of the theological and intellectual questions. And so, you know, there's been lots of excellent books that have been written that address the first question, which is how do I personally cope with pain and suffering in my life? And that's a different question. I am trying to address in my book the broader theological question of why is there evil in the first place? Why is there even pain and suffering in this world? Now, people generally aren't asking those kinds of questions when they're in the midst of suffering. They just want to ask, why me specifically? Why am I directly being impacted by this particular uh, incident, you know, whether it be death or or loss of a job or, or, you know, shattered expectations, you know, whatever the case may be. And, um, and so I, I'm in my book, I'm trying to take a broader overview of the larger question of how does evil fit within the broad panorama of God's plan for the ages of God's um, redemptive uh, plan for history. And so, so I'm taking the helicopter view and, and not so much in the trenches with, with people who are actually suffering. So, and that's, that's where I think a distinction has to be made, um, uh, in terms of what I'm addressing and what what a lot of people are looking for yeah. uh, in pain and suffering. No, that that's really good. We need both. Um, I remember. I remember. Um, this would have been. I was a junior in high school, and this particular individual was like a sophomore in college, and they were wrestling with this particular subject and they they were saying i'm not getting answers in bible call the answers i guess uh, that he wanted or something like that to uh to the questions that he had and one of the big ones was the problem of evil you know how can god be good and there be evil in the world and um you know what, what you said is so so important because you know we we people that are struggling with that they or you know, even, even people like my parents have frontal, my mom, my dad has frontal temporal dementia, you know, and he's progressing. He's had it for eight years. My mom just got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, we've had family die of cancer. You know, we've, we've had our share, our family has had our share, fair share of, of pain and, and suffering and, and hardship. And, you know, but I've never questioned because I, I have studied this subject in depth. I've never, I never questioned God's goodness, his, his justice, his, his mercy or anything like that. But I can see why people do be going through that. I can see why people do have those, those kinds of questions. They ask those kinds of questions. I'm not saying that those are the right things to, to say either, 
when I say that, I'm just saying I understand why people ask those and ask those questions. But so I'm I'm thankful for for this for this book because you know like you're like you're saying there are there are it is a weighty subject, but we have weighty answers to meet those. Um, and those are we we have to go back to that. We we have not only good answers from the scripture, but the church has good answers to people's questions. Um, and I think a lot of people are afraid or don't think that the church has good answers from the Bible. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. Do you want to touch on that maybe a little bit as it relates to to this particular subject? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, you know, I think there's been a lot of you know. Um, reluctance on the part of of theologians to address this this problem I, I find it interesting in my research that most of the most of the responses to this broad question you know why is there if God is if God is all good and all powerful why is there evil in the world that's the basic problem of evil right and, and so the assumption is is that that if, if 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 the God that is described in the Bible truly exists, and we know that He is all powerful, we know that He could stop evil, He could prevent it. It's not as if evil has greater power than God does. Uh, we know God has greater power than evil. Therefore, evil is no match uh, to to God. And we also know that God is all good. He is all benevolent. And so the question seems to be that if God is all-powerful and he is also all-good, then surely he would not want evil to be in the world. And so so it poses a question about who God is or whether or not even God exists. And so the, the, the logical problem of evil really is, is addressed at the existence of God. Uh, and, and the assumption is that if God is all-powerful and all-good, he wouldn't want evil to be in the world. And so um, so there is evil in the world, so that must place a question on on his goodness or his power. Uh, what the question fills to, to recognize is that you could have an all-powerful God and an all-good God, and he wants evil to be in the world. Mm. Um, and so that's a that throws a monkey wrench into most people's thinking. And uh, and, and so um, and a lot of Christians are afraid to to delve into that because they're taken aback by this notion, and, and they basically throw their hands up in the air and say, "Yeah, yeah, if God is all good, he he surely wouldn't want any evil to enter into this world." And, and so um, so they you know. It, it becomes an intimidating kind of question. Um, and the most common response to the problem is, is what is known as the free will defense. And it is simply this, that, that um, God risks the possibility for evil to occur because he finds that the value of free will is worth the risk. And so what I mean by free will there is a, a specific kind of definition of free will. It's known in, in theological and philosophical circles is libertarian free will, and I deal with this question in my first book uh, more extensively. Nonetheless, it's the idea that, that in order for us to be more responsible, we have to have the ability to choose either good or evil, and that in order for us to have the capacity to choose good, 
we, we have to be free to not choose good um, or we're not morally responsible creatures. And so if we're going to have the capacity to choose good, we also have to have the capacity to choose evil in order to be truly free and truly responsible uh, for our actions. Um, and so, so God sees the value of this so-called free will or this particular definition of free will. And in order to preserve the value of freedom and responsibility, God must risk that his creatures will choose evil. And so he chooses to not intervene um, in, in their free will. He chooses not to interfere with their free will. And uh, in doing so, God takes a great risk. He is risking that, that they're going to, that humans or, and angels, you could put angels in this category as well. Uh, he, he has to take the risk that these people are going to, to uh, make choices that are destructive and will bring pain and suffering into this world. Um, I spend a great deal of time in my book uh, refuting that position. I believe it is not coherent. And, uh, and and so there's a much better answer to the question of evil. And uh, and it gets back to broader questions about who God is and, and uh, his sovereignty and his transcendence and his holiness and the perfections of all of his character uh, that that um, that I think are a far better answer to the question. Yeah, that, that's a really, really good answer. So touching on, you just said who, who God is gets to this question. So how does the character of God help the Christian to address the problem of evil? I, I really think that's where a person has to start. And it's where I start in my book. After I lay out in some of the early chapters, I lay out the broader questions of, of what is the problem of evil what is evil itself? I have a whole chapter on that. Then I lay out, you know, what have been the most common responses uh, from Christians historically to the question. Uh, not everyone, because there's, you know, you know, you start reading the literature and, and there's as many different answers to the problem as there are questions about it. Uh, but I lay out what are the most common ones. And of course, the, the, the free will defense is the most common response to the problem uh, um, and so I, I evaluate some of those different responses, and then I shift gears and I move. Okay, what what does Scripture say? What does uh, what does the um, historic creeds and confessions say? And and what is what is our theological response to this? And so I begin really with theology proper uh, in, in addressing the question, and I talk about well, who is God? Uh, because until we understand the nature of God, uh, we're not going to understand understand why he has purposed evil to to exist in this world. And so I talk in some of those early chapters about the transcendence of God, this creator-creature distinction that we're talking about um, God being in a category all by himself. And so there is this, this level of transcendence, this level of greatness, of magnificence that we can't penetrate. And until we understand this holy character of God, until we understand his perfections, his righteousness, his justice, his His mercy, his goodness, all these things, we're not going to understand evil. And in light of that, unless we understand our own human depravity and our own limitations, 
mutations as finite creatures, we're not going to get we're not going to get the answers right. Uh, and, and so I think a, a theodicy, and by the by using that term theodicy, that is a, a technical term that combines the Greek word for God and for justice, and uh, and it's how do we justify God in the face of evil? This is technically how that term theodicy is used. So I am offering a theodicy. I'm I'm offering a, a, an actual answer to why there's evil in the world. And and it's a way of justifying God's purposes or God's reasons for evil. And and, and what I suggest is that, um, that it is all about the glory of God. And God has created this world not for our happiness. This is where people get the question wrong or get the answers to the question wrong. The assumption is, is that God wants us to be happy in every, how we define happiness. And virtually every human being, if they were allowed to define happiness for themselves, that would mean the absence of any pain or suffering or evil, right? But clearly, that's just not how God has organized the world, because we have a lot of pain and and evil in this world, and we know that there's going to be that way. I mean, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. Uh, But then, of course, he goes on to say, but take heart, I have overcome the world, right? And, And I think he's already beginning to allude to the fact that the whole purpose for pain and suffering is to magnify his glory, not to magnify our happiness. And yet what we find ironically is that when we see where God's glory is truly located, it is in immersing ourselves in that glory where we find true happiness for our own souls, even in spite of the fact that we experience suffering. No, that That's a really good answer. And you touched on something that I was just thinking about it. I've thought about this a lot. You know, we have such a low view of justice. I mean, by that, I mean a biblical understanding of justice, you know, satisfied in the in the wrath of of Jesus and and all that that means and we've we've undercut that for so many years that you know just no wonder that people struggle with this ultimately with this question because we know that the answer that that culminates for this particular question it finds its completion in in the perfect life death uh burial and resurrection of of Jesus and so you know it, we we can't even begin to like you're saying have the right answer to this these types of questions if we don't understand the biblical category of justice and we know that we've seen this over and over again right uh the whole idea of wrath oh we, we don't need that that's not in the bible right you, you hear that all the time it's like yeah. i don't know i don't know how you read the last part of revelation then you know when the wrath of god is being poured out on on sinners you know repeatedly um but you know or 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 many other things you know that's just one example among many but uh, yeah. so yeah you're yeah you're, our 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 culture has had a, a tendency to de- domesticate God and and make him more human like and and conversely to elevate humanity and make humanity more godlike and so that that God is really just more of a of a slightly better version than we ourselves are and so when you have this perception of God he's not the powerful just and sovereign God that he truly has revealed himself to be and we are not the autonomous you know free uh, creatures that we assume ourselves uh, to be um, and and therefore in in complete control of our own 
lives and of the unfolding of history. And so getting God and man wrong means you're going to get the questions or the answers to the questions of evil wrong, uh, because we have a low view of God and a high view of man that are not biblical views. Yeah. How does the problem of evil find its answer in the personal work of Jesus? So essentially, the argument of my book is this, and it starts with these broad questions, and it begins, of course, as I said, with the character of who God really is. And so I asked the, the, the question, why did God create the world? Why did he create the universe in the first place? And, and, and so I'm starting with very basic questions here. You know, God had no need to create the world. He didn't create the world because he was missing something. There was something missing from his life, or there was something missing from the inner Trinitarian uh, satisfaction or completion of, of God's internal nature or being, right? The inner Trinitarian nature of God. Uh, God had no need to create the world whatsoever, but rather I believe the scripture suggests that God created the world out of his own freedom without any obligation or need to do so, and yet he chose to freely create the world, but why? And I believe the answer to that question is so that he might magnify his glory, supremely magnify his glory to his creatures, especially his image-bearing creatures, which are us human beings. And so then the next question is, well, how has God most magnified his glory? If this is his goal, where has God most magnified his glory? And I think if you ask any believer, well, where is God's glory most magnified? Inevitably, they're going to say it is through the person of Jesus Christ. It is through, first of all, the incarnation of the Son of God. And, but more importantly, that that incarnation was purposed specifically so that the Son of God would die upon a cross and rise again from the dead and be exalted again to his natural place of glory at the right hand of the Father in order that his glory would be magnified in the work of redemption. And so, so God is most magnified in the redemption that Christ alone is able to achieve. And so there's only one way that God could magnify his glory, and it is through the incarnation, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's no greater way that God could magnify his glory than through those events that bring about the work of redeeming this fallen world. And so what that means is that it presupposes that in order for God to magnify his glory through the redemptive work of Christ, well, there must be something that needs to be redeemed. There must be some crisis that requires redemption or that begs for redemption. And that crisis is the fall of humanity. It is the curse that rests upon our world. And so God deemed that it was, uh, that his glory would be more magnified in a world that has fallen, in a world that has left its initial state of paradisical perfection in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, it was better for that place to fall and to descend into the depths of darkness that our world has descended into so that God could send forth his Son and redeem this world 
through his death and resurrection and ultimate exaltation. And that that basically the storyline of Scripture, which is what, what theologians often call creation, fall, redemption, right? You have this sort of U-shaped storyline to Scripture, um, that it is in this particular storyline that God's glory is most magnified. Mm-hmm. If God had just allowed the, the the unfallen creation just to continue in a in a flat line, there would be no opportunity for God to magnify his glory. For example, we would not be able to see God's justice, right? Because there would be no sin or evil by which he could display his justice. There would be no opportunity for God to display his grace or his mercy, the things that we, we celebrate the most as Christians, if there was not evil from which his grace, we would beg for such grace and mercy. Hmm. Right? Because Adam and Eve didn't need any mercy in their pre-fallen state. They didn't need any justice in their pre-fallen state. So God purposed the fall to take place in order that he would magnify his glory. And what I suggest is that in actuality, the storyline of Scripture isn't this U-shaped storyline, creation, fall, redemption, but it's actually J-shaped. It is creation, fall, redemption is up here, and, and redemption is so much more glorious because of the fall than if the world had been flat. So it's really not a U-shaped storyline, it's a J-shaped storyline, so that the state of the restoration of the creation and redeemed creatures in the eternal kingdom of God is a far better place than Eden would have been had it never fallen. Mm. And so the restored Eden, the restored paradise is better precisely because it fell and it allowed God to magnify his glory through the work of the redemptive work of Christ in his incarnation, death, resurrection, and exaltation. So that's uh, that's a mouthful. <laughs> and, uh, there's a lot to unpack there, and that's what I do in the book is unpack what that really looks like. Yeah, that, that's really, really a good answer. Very good. How do we hold the sovereignty of God and free will intention and not compromise on one or the other? Yeah, oh boy. <laughs> so I wrote my first book on this question, and I address it, and it, and it intersects, of, of course, this the problem of evil. And uh, I, I think a couple of important things to understand there. First of all, uh, as my pastor likes to say, the Bible has these twin towers. You have the, the tower of God's sovereignty, and you have side by side the tower of human responsibility, and we could add human freedom and responsibility, uh, depending on how you define freedom of will for human beings. Nonetheless, the important thing that I think we need to understand is that God's sovereignty is not fatalistic. This is very important because most people assume that if you hold a Calvinistic or Reformed view of sovereignty, which I do, and that's what I promote in my book, it must mean that it, that you believe in fatalism. What is fatalism? Fatalism is it will be, things are just going to be the way they're going to be, and there's nothing that you can do about it, right? Um, it's the idea that if God has determined the course of history, if he's determined your choices for your own individual life, well, there's nothing you can do about that, and so you just sit back passively and allow it to happen, and that's all we can do. You're a robot at that point. We're robots, right? That's the common objection to the, the Calvinistic view of God's sovereignty. Well, that is that is not that is not true. That is not what any Calvinist has ever suggested. Um, true Calvinists, that is. There have been some hyper-Calvinists that have gone in that fatalistic direction. But I think there is as much heresy as anyone who would deny uh, God's sovereignty altogether. Nonetheless, uh, it's a pagan notion that God is fatalistic. No, God 
always uses secondary means to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And that means that human beings act within the broad matrix of God's sovereign purposes in, in free and responsible ways. And so we see these twin towers. We see that God does not act in human history except in extraordinary incidences of his providences that we might call miracles or whatever. In his ordinary providential actions, he always uses secondary means, right? He uses it in the natural world in what we call the laws of nature, and he uses it in in the human arena of human choices uh, by virtue of our freely voluntarily made choices that are never coerced. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, God never coerces us to act against our wills, right? We always act according to the strongest desires of our heart as they act upon the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And, and, uh, and, and so God's sovereignty never violates our will and, and our freedom as, as, as creatures. And there's a lot else that could be said about that, uh, but that's that's a starting place. Yeah, you know, we we could consider the the life of Joseph, right? I mean, look at what happened to Joseph. He was you know sold into into slavery, and then you know we know that he rose up in in power in in um, Egypt by the by the plan of God and the providence of God. You know, at the end of his life, what does he say in Genesis fifty twenty? You know, what you meant for what was meant for evil. You know, God turned around for our for our good. A loose that's a loose paraphrase. I can't remember yeah. the exact. Yeah. Uh, just to be clear, yeah. yeah. So it's important. Yeah, it's important to understand that 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 Joseph, when his brothers came before him after he was essentially the prime minister of Egypt, and they were trembling before him, yeah. shaking in their boots. Uh, you know, they recognized that they were responsible for selling him into slavery. They they take moral responsibility for those actions, and, and Joseph doesn't deny them that reality. In other words, he recognizes himself that they are more morally responsible. But what is interesting is that in chapter 46, 47 of Genesis, in, in the initial meeting with his brothers, he says, I want you to know that even though you sent me here, even though you did this deed, I want you to know that it was actually God who sent me here. In other words, God stood behind his brothers selling him into slavery. And so what you see there is you see this, this twin towers, right? You see God sovereignly ordained that his brothers would sell him into slavery, and yet that does not, uh, you know, they don't escape the fact that they themselves made that decision individually themselves with moral responsibility because they wanted to send him there, right? They didn't do it against their own wills, and yet God determined that that was what was going to happen. So, when Joseph then explains the theological, uh, you know, explanation for that, that event in, in, in Genesis 50-20, as you, you alluded to, which I think is one of the most important passages of Scripture that unfolds the reality of this. So he says, what you meant for evil, in other words, he's talking about the, 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 the motives and desires of their hearts, right? And this is where moral responsibility is located in Scripture. It is in our motives and desires, right? This is why Jesus says that it is out of the heart, you know, that come forth murders and lies and adultery and, and all this sort of thing, right? It, it's the motivations of the heart. And so what your motives were, were evil. But God, who superintended by his providence and by his sovereign 
decree, this same event of you selling me into slavery, he had an entirely different motive for it. And his motive was entirely good. So what you meant for evil, he meant for good. And so this is this presents a kind of a paradox, right? Because Joseph's brothers were responsible for moral evil, and yet God took that same moral, morally evil event and intended the same thing for good, right? And, and the mm-hmm. good Joseph explains is so that many people would be saved through this famine that God has raised me up to address and, and to preserve God's promises, which eventually is a preservation of, of the messianic line going all the way back to Genesis 3 and the, the seed of the woman uh, for the, the future of the Messiah. So, I mean, God used that incident very specifically in redemptive history to bring about his plan of redemption. Wow. Uh, and, so yeah yeah well yeah. well said i wasn't me trying to cut you off i was just trying to say well said did you have more that you wanted to wanted no to no no it's a that's a that genesis fifty twenty. i'm glad you brought it up because that is such a critical passage of scripture for us to understand uh it is one of the few places in scripture that really pulls uh th- these two twin towers together in a way that makes sense you know just just practically i mean we can we can look at that like we're talking about and and say to that with confidence, you know, God hasn't abandoned us, right? He He's at work in history so we can trust him. What does that mean? I mean, it means for somebody like me who has parents with memory issues or somebody with cancer or somebody with uh, that that's had a family member die with COVID. You know, it's it's God isn't the cause of, of those things. Things we know it sin is in the world, I and mean, sin has an ultimate, you know, expiration date, you know, in the in the coming of Jesus, and um, he's he's coming, and he'll write every every all of history um, that that he governs and sustains by the word of his power. So you know that's that's good news. He's he's at work, and he's not disinterested in the world. He's he's interested in 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 us. Um, yeah, so that's actually the a comfort. Us. I, I think I think where a lot of the comfort lies, you know, when we live in a kind of world that is dark and depressing and 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 disheartening and leaves us with a great deal of anxiety and uncertainty, uh, to recognize that evil is not some independent power that exists apart from God and is kind of off doing its own thing, and God is up in heaven and and wringing his hands and like, oh my goodness, how could this be happening? You know, and, and he's down here with us lamenting this unfolding of evil in the same we are the same way that we are if god were really in that position oh my goodness we would lose all hope and we would have no reason to believe in such a god because he's no better than we are uh, that is not the god of the bible the god of the bible is such that he is superintending everything that happens in the course of history and it includes every instance of good and evil and and he has a plan for all of it and, and that's what we have to grasp as Christians and he stands above it because his plan is always you know infinitely wise and infinitely good uh, and and because God is transcendent we can't always understand that so there's a certain level of mystery a certain level of incomprehensibility about God's plan that we're never going to be able to penetrate especially 
especially when it comes to specific instances of evil in our own individual lives, we, we ask ourselves, I, I don't understand, God, what, what the purpose is by having my father, for example, in my own case, my father who died when he was 72 and seemed to be in perfect health. Mm. Um, you know, I don't understand that. I, I don't know why that, that took place in that specific instance. But I know that overall, God has some good purpose for everything. Mm. Though I may not fully understand it, I can trust him because I know that he is good mm. and that he is wise and that evil is not outside of his control, but in fact has been purposely ordained by him for very specific purposes that he will that will ultimately achieve his glory and our edification when we place our faith in Christ. Amen. Well said, brother. Well, outside of your book, what are some of the books you found helpful on this topic? Yeah, there's, you know, this goes back to the earlier question of uh, the two types of issues that we're dealing with. So, so when you're dealing with the intellectual and theological problem of evil, you know, there, there's some good books out there, but, but one that I recommend, and it's interesting, both of these books that I want to recommend came out uh, in the time that I was doing research for my book. And, and, and so one of those is, is called God and the Problem of Evil, Five Views. It's put out by University Press. Um, it's it's uh, edited by a guy named Chad Meister and James Dew. Um, it's, it's a good place to go to get the bigger picture of how different Christians have answered this, this, this problem. Uh, there's a there's a couple of chapters in there that are are particularly good and then some that are not so good <laughs> but it's one of those response view you know books you know so the other guys respond uh, that's a good place just to get a broad view of of the issue uh, from the, the the theological issue and the technical what we sometimes theologians and philosophers call the technical problem of evil. The other book that I would recommend in this arena, and this is the one that I would go to first for especially for Christians who really want to get a good grasp of this. It's by Greg Welty. Uh, it's po- published by Christian Focus out of Scotland. Uh, it came out about two years ago, I think. Um, it's called Why Is There Evil in the World and So Much of It. It's a small book. It's a, a about 200 pages. Now, my book is like 570 pages. (laughs) His book is real tiny. If you want just a quick introduction, very easy to understand, but very, very theologically and philosophically astute, go to Greg Welty. It is the best little book that I think there is to introduce yourself to the basic problems. Um, now, his book is very limited uh, because it, it focuses on largely the, the theological, philosophical questions that arise, and I deal with some of those questions as well. But he doesn't offer what I would call a positive theodicy, which is what I have done in my book. So if you want to go deeper and you want to look at a very specific answer to the problem, which Greg Welty doesn't really offer in his book, uh, then, then obviously I've tried to do that in my book. Now, when it comes to just books on how does the Christian cope with suffering, um, that's a different question, as I suggested. And there's some good books there, too. A lot of really good books there. A couple I would recommend are, for example, Johnny Erickson Tata's books. Uh, many know that, that Johnny Erickson Tata is a quadriplegic. Uh, she, she, when she was a teenager, she had a diving accident that basically paralyzed her uh, from the neck down. And uh, and wow, she is just, she has a perspective on suffering that very few people have. Uh, her book called The Place of Healing is really good. Uh, there's an earlier book she wrote called When God Weeps. 
really highly recommend those books. Uh, Paul Tripp has a, a recent book called Suffering that I think is really good. Uh, and then Dave Polson, who just recently died, um, I think this is the last book he wrote before he died called God's Grace in Your Suffering. That's a really good book too for people who are in the midst of suffering themselves and are looking for comfort, for, for peace, for a salve to their souls. Those are those are some good places to go. Yeah, those are good. Nancy Guthrie also has some good books on yes. particular subject. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of good good books yeah. on how to handle your own personal suffering. Yeah, that's good. All those are good too that you mentioned. Where can people go to find out more about your work online or on social media, Scott? Uh, yeah, you can you can find me on Facebook. Um, you can find my my public page on Facebook. Uh, it's uh, Pastor Scott Christensen. Um, it's all one set of words. If you type that in uh, on Facebook search, you'll find me there. Uh, on Twitter and Parlor, uh, you can find me at Pastor Scott C, at Pastor Scott C, and uh, on, on Twitter and Parler. And uh, those would be the main places to, to check me out. I, I do, I have an Instagram page, but I don't really, I don't really frequent that that much. I, you know, I'm not a big social media guy. I try to get on there a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, I'm I a busy guy. <laughs> I think we're following each other on all those, so. Yes, yes. Well, uh, there's a lot that we could really dive into about this topic, even more so than, you know, we We've even scratched, we've just scratched the surface guys on this one. So yes, yes. Just as we wrap up this conversation, Scott, it's been really enjoyable. Do you have a, any takeaways for our listeners? Yeah. You know, I would just say we have no need as Christians to be dismayed by the problem of evil. Um, we have every reason to rejoice because we believe in a God who has a sovereign plan, a, an all wise, all good sovereign plan for everything that happens in this world, including everything that is going on right now and everything that happens in our individual lives. And and as a result of that, we can trust Him. I mean, He is a good God. He is in control, and He is so magnificent in His glory that we have to wrap ourselves in that glory. We have to be immersed in it. Um, we have to turn away from looking at ourselves and our own personal happiness. This is really, I think, where Job, in the book of Job, found his hope. It's when he started to turn away from himself and and, and start and stopped fretting about all the unanswered questions that that he never got answers to, right? He he, he posed all these questions to God, you know, why, why, why am I suffering? Lord, I'm going to take you to court and, and get you to answer these questions, right? And he did that, and God said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go to court with you. And then God gave his monologue and the, that kind of, almost a courtroom scene. And what did he do? He didn't answer a single one of Job's questions. What he did is he started recounting his acts in creation and providence and and demonstrated how magnificent he is. He says, where were you when I did this, when I set the stars in the sky and when I fed all these animals and established an environment for all these creatures and, and created this world and all that? Where were you when I did all 
these things. And, and Job finally recognizes that I was nowhere <laughs> and I was nobody, but you are somebody. And when I recognize the magnificence of this God and the fact that this God will have mercy in the midst of my suffering, um, you know, or as Habakkuk says, Lord, have mercy in the midst of your wrath. Uh, that is where we find solace. That is where we find satisfaction from our for our souls. It is in magnifying this glorious God who has defeated all of the powers of evil through Christ, uh, through his redemptive work, and later on, he will defeat all other evil through his work of eternal justice. And that is where we need to find our hope. And that is where I believe we will we will be at peace and experience the joy of knowing this magnificent God. Amen, brother. Well said. Well, Scott, I've really enjoyed talking to you about this. And uh, guys, uh, Scott's book is What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory. I recommend you pick it up and uh, take the time to, to work through it. You'll be blessed. Um, Scott, thank you for your time and for coming on and equipping you in grace. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day, brother. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.